Okay, okay. We've got five, Sammy, four, and yet three, but two and one. Hey guys, welcome to the Red Room. My name's Sandy. And I'm Anya. This is our debut podcast. No idea what we're doing, but we're very excited to be doing it. We are currently sat at the Fuel Bar at Barry Central, which has been our home for the last seven years, and uh, it's the birthplace of Barry's London and Barry's UK. So the idea behind the whole the whole thing, right, Anya, is that we spend our lives teaching classes at Barry's. Obviously, we always say people come and start training at Barry's for one thing and then maybe stay for something completely different. And I guess over the course of this series, we're going to tap into that. Today's episode is really interesting um, for us and for me personally. We're going to be talking about something that everyone has, but often we don't openly discuss. It's all about mental health. We are very lucky that we're joined by Patrick Johnston, who's a legendary Barry's client. Uh, but more importantly, from Place to Be Charity, which is a simply fantastic children's mental health charity. Um, as well as Zoe Aston, who is the psychotherapist and creator of Your Mental Health Workout. I mean, I learned so much from speaking to these guys. Yeah, a lot of food for thought. So here it is. So we've just done the 12.30 class. It was amazing. And we're here at Central with the amazing Patrick Johnston, who is the Director of Learning and Practice at A Place to Be, which is one of the UK's leading mental health children's charities. Hi, Anya. So also with us is Zoe Aston, who, as well as being our mental health consultant at Barry's, is also founder of Your Mental Health Workout. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that's very, very important to Sandy and I, and I think all of the team at Barry's, which is mental health and obviously the importance of mental health. I always think that people come to Barry's for one thing. Maybe it's abs or I don't know, biceps or whatever it is, and it's usually a physical thing they stay for something completely different mm -hmm. and it normally has nothing to do with a physical benefit it's mainly a mental thing or a, the way it makes you feel so something you said about everyone having a story right it kind of resonates with me and I'm sure it does with you Annie as well we have I mean, thousands of clients coming in every day we see individually what 50 clients each everyone comes into the red room with a different story something that's happened to them that day that week that year and it has such an effect mm. on how you train how you think coming into it and we have to be very um alive to that i think it's quite a privilege actually our job you never know what someone's going through all the people that come through the doors we never know yes we've got a microphone on we're telling them what to do but it's so much more than that you know, the amount of times I've had people crying on a bench in their cool down or you know, someone even came up to me at the beginning of a class and before the class even began, she just said, I would just want to let you know that I'm going to be pretty useless today. My mum died last yesterday. In fact, it was yesterday, the day before. But I've brought myself here just so I can do something positive and I can get my head out of that place. And obviously I had no idea and I would, would have had no idea. Um, but my approach to her was completely different to how it would have been ordinarily and it's just interesting to know I know people say you never know what someone's going through and that was a perfect yeah. case in hand Patrick you, you've been coming to us for how long years years, yeah, years I'm, an, years. I'm an old dog at this <laughs> right? stage but you're, you're I mean uh, like I said everyone comes with a story right you've gone through a bit you of a journey you've gone story. through a bit of a journey yourself in the sense yeah. that when we first met you were at a school um, as deputy head yeah assistant head so I joined Barry's probably yeah it's probably four or five years ago now actually right early days central was where I used to come 
And, and as Sandy said, I, I was an assistant head at a school in London, very, very busy school. And for me, Barry's very quickly became that, that thing, that thing that I did on a daily basis. 6am is normally where I'm found uh, in a class. And what's been interesting about Barry's for me, and it's funny when, when I look at my friendship group, and, and my friendship group has changed, actually, since I've started at Barry's, and that's changed because a lot of my Barry's friends have become really close friends of mine as well. And I think there's something quite unique about not just the space, the trainers, the workout, but I think the people that's in the room with you as well. And we frequently, in the field of mental health, talk about relationships, the relationship that I'll have with myself, my body, my mind, but the relationship I have with my trainers, the relationship I'll have with those around me. And I think that's something that's really quite special, especially in a big city like London, where you can very much get lost very quickly. So I, yeah, it's five-ish years, and I do East mostly um, at 6 a.m. But it's for me, it's very much, it's that space. I have an hour every day. Um, my job is, as everybody's quite busy, and we're all quite time poor, but that hour is mine. And it's mine that nobody interferes with, bar Alex, Jay, whoever it is, is telling me to run faster, pick up more, whatever it might be. But that's my hour that nobody interferes with. And I think that's a really important thing. And for lots of us, we have different approaches to look after our mental health and well-being. But for me, I don't see it just as a physical approach. It's very much what I do to look after my mind. And I think you'll find that story in so many people, as you said, that come for arms or abs, but actually it's so much more. It's a solitude, it's a space, in the same way that Zoe and I would think about a, a therapeutic space and the way that we approach that with our clients. I think it's the same here for many people. Well, I think that I'm hopeless at meditation or any kind of mindfulness. I've tried it a million times, but actually for me, just running on the treadmill, that is my head-clearing space. It's where I can just take my mind somewhere else and not think about all the noise that's going on externally i don't know if that's what meditation is like because i've never been very good at it but that for me is my meditation to get on a tread and just run or to have someone else take me on a journey that's that i haven't planned or thought about i'm just immersed in it i have a question for you guys because a lot of people talk to us about um like you said the day could be busy or stressful all the external stuff that's going on and this is almost a safe space and people will come to our room to train and get out of their head and kind of escape it almost. But is that the healthiest way to approach it, to try and escape your feelings for an hour? Or is it a time when we try to actually engage with those feelings? And what's your... So I have, some, I have a particular way of thinking about that because, as you know, my original... I did my master's in addiction psychology. So an exercise is one of the things that we can get addicted to. Mm. I think exercise is great and it benefits lots of people in lots of different ways. And we have to be able to use it in a way that is functional to our emotional well-being. So in that, using it to process thoughts and feelings rather than discharge them um, is really healthy. Using exercise to get rid of feelings and sort of self-medicate through it is where we run into trouble because it means that people can't stop because they're not learning to regulate their own feelings and manage their own thinking. Um, they're using exercise to sub substitute what is actually what could be a sort of healthy emotional relationship with themselves. Everyone's on a spectrum of addiction. Everyone's on a spectrum of most things most of the time. So people would do that more or less. Um, but yes, absolutely. I think the healthiest way to use exercise, particularly intensive exercise like Barry's, is about allowing feelings to 
process and settle so that you can then take action with them afterwards. How, how do you recommend approaching exercise with that in mind then, trying to pro- process through it rather than push it aside? Because I know I'm certainly guilty of pushing emotion aside. We have to push things aside at times. That's just life. You know, if we're, if we're in our feelings all the time, then we will end up being like quivering wrecks and not being able to do our jobs. So we have to be able to show up and do our thing and be able to leave some of what's going on in our minds and in our hearts outside the door. But you also have to know how to get back to it. So I often describe people's minds, I guess, or emotional landscapes as like blueprints. So that if you need to leave this, as she points at the top right corner, <laughs> outside the door, you know that you can go and do your thing and then come back to it and pick it up and deal with it, possibly in a better state than you were before you, before you worked out or before you meditated or before you had to step into your kind of work persona. That's the challenge. And that, that's the challenge that we all face. It's it, that challenge of being able to identify that moment of when you are either putting it to the side or dealing with it. And I think that's a really big challenge for some of us to to deal with. And I think what's always described is, you know, some of that process that some people need to go through to be able to identify it. And it's not easy. Uh, It is something we have to work at. And I think it's that moment when you can identify with what it is you are feeling and being able to either park it or, or embrace it, being angry in the shower after a workout or whatever it is. Because there's also a biological component that we'll frequently hear about. And for some people, actually, they may have had a really long day at work or they may be, may be thinking about what they're about to go into at work and having that time and the endorphins that's released. And I think one of the things that a Barry's class in particular can bring you through is a bit of a cycle. Uh, you know, personally, I definitely have that dread. Uh, you know, you get there in the morning, you think, right, how am I going to get through the next hour? And all of a sudden you're at half past and all of a sudden you're cooling down and you go through a real cycle and you feel at the end and you know, frequently the trainer will remind you this feels absolutely like crap right now. But think about 15 minutes after you leave the room. And it's so true, the endorphins. And we know, and it's really well researched, the endorphins and all of the other chemicals that exercise can release. But for me, the most important thing is about how do we identify the state that we're feeling. And and I think that's something that, as a population, as a species, sometimes we're not very good at doing. Well, Because you work very closely with children, and you were telling us when we last saw you about how most mental health issues start very, very, very young. Mm. And how, you know, what's fascinating is trying to educate children, I guess, to recognise all these things. So, I mean, I'd love you to tell us a bit about a place to be because... Yeah, so we, we know that, you know, and research shows us time and time again that 50% of adult mental health difficulties are diagnosable by the age of 14. So we can start to see, and we know that children who grow up with well, good well-being will more than likely end up as adults who will have good mental health. But, you know, things do happen, and we've got to remember that. There is no perfect, that blueprint that's always really well described. Things happen at times, you know, loss, grief, trauma, they're all things that we will go through in some way shape or form in our life but for me and for the organization place to be that I work with we very much value the the earliest intervention that we can have and one of the things that stands out most to me is about giving children and young people a voice and allowing them to say hold on I don't feel well in or I need help with and I think for me that's the most powerful thing that I've seen in my over two years that I've worked a place to be One of the services we provide, we allow children, predominantly in primary schools that we work in, so 75% of our schools are, we're in 75% of our businesses in primary schools, so working with up to age 11-ish. And in those schools, we have a self-referral drop-in service. 
So we've got a little post box in the school where any child in the school or young person can fill in a slip, put it in the box and ask for a 15-minute slot with one of our therapists. And last year, 40,000 children or young people put their hand up to ask for that. You can see Anya's face just was like, wow. Um, But loads of people make that exact face when I talk about this. And and I think for some people we sit on the, oh my God, there are 40,000 children and young people who have a really difficult time and what's going on. And that can be really worrying. But for me, I have to be glass half full and think there's 40,000 young people and children who put their hand up and said, do you know what? I'm not feeling well right now. Or I just want to talk about, and for the vast majority, it's friendships, it's relationships, it's family. And I think, you know, we've got to really approach that in a positive way to say the next generation are not going to be afraid. They're not going to be afraid to put their hand up to ask for help in the way that we're seeing with climate change right now. They're not afraid to stand up for what they believe in. And I think that's a really positive. So whilst we pick up the newspaper and we see one in eight children have got a diagnosable mental health difficulty or disorder, yes, that is worrying, but we do have... There is hope there. There is a group of people who are willing to talk about it. And I think we need to, as the adults in the room, actually catch up a little bit with them. I'm sitting here thinking, I wish that space was, you know, in your gym or in, you know, your office for adults to be able to openly say, I have a problem, please help me, please talk to me. We at Barry's have been doing the mental health first aid course, which has been absolutely enlightening. But what I found so shocking was the fact that most people have mental health issues and don't ever talk about it. So no one would know on the outside. That's the thing that's interesting to me is that we all have mental health. I think, yes, there are one in four adults and one in eight children that have a diagnosable issue. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us get to take our mental health for granted. It doesn't mean that the rest of us are immune from having to take care of our mental health. And I think we've got to start approaching mental health in a similar way. Um, And my whole MO is making working on your mental health as accessible and acceptable as working on your physical health, because I think it's just so important. And when I hear you talk about the next generation, Patrick, I'm like, yes, because I totally believe that as part of the wellness trend, part of the wellness community, we have got a, a whole bunch of millennials healing from something that has been actually a really long time coming which means that yes the next generation might not be quite so frightened and quite so stigmatized around talking about the bits that we can't see about ourselves it's this weird thing so for me and any anybody that i've taught before when i was a teacher will know that one of my pedantic things is about language and we have a real issue with language at the moment around i want to ask you about that actually because i've found myself saying that if, you know if something is a surprise or something you go, oh it's crazy yeah well that's insane that's mental those are the words that we use to describe something which we can't believe or and usually it's a good thing you know oh that's insane that's that's so great i'm like every time i say it myself and i still do it i catch myself i'm like that doesn't sound right anymore whereas a couple of years ago i wouldn't mm. know i've thought about it at all mm. but is that is that yeah, and, and my point is very much around the words mental health, actually. You know, if we step back and, you know, you've given really specific examples, but if we just think of the word mental health, so everybody, all four of us and everybody who comes to Barry's has got mental health in the same way that we've all got physical health. And there are some days my mental health will be really, really good, and there'll be some days that my, my mental health will probably not be as good in the same way that we have the approach with our physical health. So we all know, and you and I were just talking about some days you don't feel great, you might have a cold, you might have picked up something along the way, and that's 
actually your physical health. But we're not afraid to talk about it. Mm. But the stigma is changing. I think the conversation is changing. And I think we are definitely on the right journey and trajectory. And I think lots has been done. There's been some brilliant campaigns around being able to speak up about mental health. But the stigma that's attached to it, we do not have, in this country still, we do not have parity around physical and mental Mm. health. And people are still ashamed to say things about their well-being and their own mental health. I think it was quite interesting last year when we had the whole conversation about, is it a a stiff upper lip Mm. in British society? Uh, Yeah, it's not just in the British society. You know, it's very much, it's seen across the world. It is just something that people are afraid of. I think it's the point you made, so we have not been able to see it. We're all terrified of things we can't see. Mm-hmm. Think back to when you were a child and that you know, monster under your bed. You were terrified of it because you couldn't see it, not because it was, you, know, you thought it was there. It's all about what you can't see. I guess the monster's you. It's following you around. So you can't get rid of the monster unless someone... Unless you see it, unless yeah. you look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think was part of my um, externalising this sort of idea of a mental health workout because people have got it written down. Like, here is your mental health workout. It's much more difficult to forget about it or for the novelty to wear off when you've got something like that in front of you. Okay, this is what I need to do to look after my mental health. What kind of things do you suggest other than obviously something like Barry's, which we all know makes us (laughs) or makes me feel great, but what other tools do you... So things like Barry's, the exercise stuff I put in, the weekly plan, so to speak, three times a week. And the other things are things like, um, I talk about therapy, but therapy can be, therapy doesn't have to be sitting in a room with someone like me or Patrick for an hour each week. Therapy can be a group setting or, you know, it might be something, it might, you might have a totally different understanding of what therapy looks like for you. It might be that going to, working at a charity once a week or something like that is really, really helpful. Just somewhere that feels safe and contained and private because, because of social media, we have so much of our lives on show. I think that space that isn't storied and isn't posted about and is actually still precious to you is something that's really important to have in our lives as good mental health because lots of people feel the need to show off everything that they're doing. And therapy is the one thing that you don't have to do that with. In fact, you can't. The other bits and pieces are things like uh, socialising, so they're really basic stuff. It's the stuff that we know, but these are the things that fall by the wayside when our mental health takes a bit of a backslide. So the weekly one is therapy, socialising, exercise, and self-care. And really understanding what self-care looks like for every individual, whether that's in- internal or external. So having a bath and rubbing body lotion into yourself is great, but that's only going to go so far. You then have to do the internal stuff as well. The external self-care makes space for being able to build on that relationship with yourself and to have those difficult conversations with the sad, lonely, upset, angry parts of yourself. A bit referencing back to something that Patrick was saying about relationships. You know, A lot of our pain, a lot of our difficulty, a lot of the what we call mental health problems, I'm hesitating to use that word, but come from what's happened to us in relationship with other people. So connections with other people are really, really important in terms of healing how we think about ourselves and how we think about ourselves in relationship to other people. And then I use the word appreciation to talk about gratitude and affirmation because I think the words gratitude and affirmation have kind of been robbed by pop psychology and the self-care trend, which I absolutely agree with to an extent but they don't always work in the way 
that we expect them to work because actually they work on something far deeper. They work on your self-concept and your self-esteem. It's not about saying, I love myself, and then all of a sudden loving myself. And then people go, well, I don't love myself. I'm telling myself I'm loving myself three times a day. Why doesn't that work? I'm like, well, because you don't love yourself. All you're doing is telling a lie. It just doesn't match with how you feel about yourself. So working on that in a really intimate way to make sure that you're using things like gratitudes and affirmations to develop a true and honest understanding of who you are and then being able to represent that to the rest of the world. Um, and then the fourth one on the daily workout stuff is actually just movement because emotions are like emotions are energy in motion and I love that so I've always stuck with it um, because they just every time we have a feeling like the four of us are sitting here really still right now but we're all having feelings all the time and feelings are basically hormones and chemistries and bits and pieces firing off so when we stand up we're going to start stretching and moving around because our bodies need to release I'm doing it as I sit here, <laughs> flapping my arms around, but our bodies need to release some of the emotions that have got stuck in our system while we've been sitting still for an hour. I mean, it's not natural for any of us to be sitting still for exactly. a and length of time. And let's so face it, people... the majority of people, yeah. majority of adults and kids as, as well in schools, they're sitting still for most yeah. of the day, right? But also moving, walking around the block, taking an eye break, going to get a cup of tea, you know, emptying the dishwasher, these little types of movements just allow your body to also keep your feelings moving around so they don't get stagnant and you don't end up with feeling depressed or feeling too anxious so a lot of this stuff is things that you can do for yourself right it's quite a, a reflective process do you think that um we're talking about physical health and how that it's a lot if you have a cold for example you'll tell someone you go i've got a cold and then mm. that person might go they're not scared to hear that oh you've got a cold they might go oh well I use Vicks or I have a, have a hot Ribena or whatever. Yeah. And you, you give a bit of advice and you're not suddenly go, oh my God, they've just told me they've got a cold and you don't want to talk about it. it yeah, was- the course was amazing because I think it just gave us tools on how to talk to people or just be a bit more of a support in that way and understand that it's not a stigma. I mean, certainly it's easier to relate to things when you've been through them yourself. But I think it just made it a conversation that I now feel comfortable if someone were to say to me you know like the lady saying to me before the class mm. I'm not in a good place I've just lost my mum yeah. and rather than before I know that that would have had it would have made me scared I wouldn't have known how to approach it instead I didn't feel terrified by those comments I just wrapped my arms around her I was like you just do what you want to do but you've just, just demonstrated you. in what you said that actually that's all that sometimes needs to happen mm. is that we must not be it, it's not this taboo it's not this you know it's not something that we should be frightened of because frequently all it is is that human connection that needs to be re-established to be thought about that will make things so much better for some people and we know that there are other extremes where people will need in the same way with my physical health there will be some people who will require quite intensive treatment and that's fine but for lots of people actually that human connection the pieces that Zoe's talked about that kind of normality and I think what's really surprising sometimes for people who don't work in the mental health field is that when people like Zoe or myself go in and we start to talk about really basic things there's that moment of oh is that it and it's yeah that is it it's the same thing and actually it's just being relatable being a human being able to interact with each other having that empathy that you might just stop and listen listening is one of the hardest things for anybody to do but actually it's the most soothing thing for somebody in distress to be heard and we know that time and time again and and the, the kids that we work with in the schools that I'm in it's very much just about being heard and for that woman she just needed to tell you 
She just needed, you know, you were probably one of the first people that she saw outside of her immediate family. She just needed to tell you because she needed maybe to verbalize it to anybody. And you were somebody that she trusted to tell. And I think that moment, that connection you had with her is something she'll probably always remember. And it's funny, if we all think back to those situations that we've been in like that, we all remember those. It's like with the teacher. We all remember that teacher who took that interest in you or who was that moment or that person who, who fought for you uh, when you were in trouble or whatever it would have been at school. But I think it is the simplicity and we've overcomplicated it. Um, so I think, you know, for me, there's probably lots of parents who'll be listening to this and, and, and I always get them. asked. Um, I'm starting to, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about my child, thinking yeah. what is, you know, what is he going to go through? Especially, you know, the the you talk about connection with other people and you've mentioned social media and the fact that I feel like people are becoming so far removed from each other because everything is an interface of Instagram or how you're perceived or talking through, you know, even watching my nephews and they're playing computer games, but they're not playing them together anymore. They're playing Mm. them through a TV screen. And for me, that's so scary because to hear this and to hear that it is just about natural human connections and normal things that have, that we assume happen in everyday life, but people do feel lonely, and they are missing those. So how do you enable your children to not have that experience, especially uh, with changing, evolving society? So I think, one, it's for us not to be terrified <laughs> that, there, that there are going to be changes. And the way that we interact, you know, I frequently hear, well, in my day, you know, we went out into the field and we played, I'm Irish, I grew up in a tiny little town, and that is exactly what we did. But hey, the world has changed. And actually, young people are really good. Some of them have been able to manage this. But for parents, it's about, actually, I, I frequently go to schools and give talks uh, to parents to think about things that they might be doing. And it's the same thing. Actually, sometimes parents need to stop and they need to be present with their children. And that's something that we hear time and time again from children and young people about that presence. And, and young people, I think, are really good at telling you when you're a hypocrite. So you sitting there saying, put that phone away, get off social media. What are you doing? But you're sat there responding to a work email or you're on Facebook because that's what mums and dads tend to do now. Um, they will sit there and they'll call it out. So I do think for parents listening and thinking about this, it is about being present, being able to relate to, following similar rules. Um, sleep is a big one as well that I'm sure is on your list of the daily stuff and getting good routines in place. Um, but doing it as a family, So, for example, there's no point telling your child or young person to not bring their mobile phone to the bedroom so that you're not on Instagram or you're not on whatever else if you as a family are not doing the same. So one of the things I frequently talk about is leaving everybody's phone in the same place. Charge them in the kitchen. Why do we need to take it? You know, we frequently hear, but I used to hear from the kids all the time, it's my alarm clock. And we know that, you know, lots of people will say that. But actually, you can get a big old-fashioned alarm clock that will wake you up in the same way. Um, So it's just about being a bit more approachable to it and starting to think about things in a very practical way. Social media, we could go into in so much detail. And I think everybody has their views (laughs) and their opinions on it. And I'm sure Zoe will have lots. But actually, I think social media, we've got to remember that we don't know the full story. Research is really sketchy about it. It's conflicting. Some people will say it's for them a real release and it's how actually for some people they stay connected in those human um, connectivity that I just described. But for others, in the same way that we've talked about addiction with anything, it can slip. It can slip in the wrong side. 
But I, I don't think it would be right for anybody to say, and, and nobody is saying, if you look at all of the research, no one body is saying that you should have this amount of screen time or that amount of screen time. And I think it's about setting boundaries in the same way that we do with everything in life. Can I, can I just touch on, because we were speaking about addic- addiction a bit, but we didn't really get into addiction to fitness. And mm. so you mentioned it at the beginning. Can you identify someone who has a, you think a problem and then take action yourself or... What is the best way to deal with that if you think you have a friend who has a problem? First things first, addiction is the only self-diagnosing illness. So only the person knows if they are addicted to something. Because with addiction, it doesn't matter how much you're using of whatever it is that you're using. It's the why you're using it and how intense it is for you. So someone could come, if we use the exercise metaphor, someone could come once a day, every day, and they could be completely addicted to uh, fitness or exercise. Someone could come three times a day, six times a week, and actually they're still processing their feelings and they're not using it to medicate their emotions and get out of their head and it's not disturbing the rest of their life and actually it's not an addiction. I mean, if you're coming three times a day, there might be a little bit of denial in there, but you get the gist. Only the person who's doing it can say, this has become a problem, this is now affecting the other parts of my life. And even people come to me with addictions. They say, I think I might be an alcoholic or I think I might have an eating disorder or I think I might be addicted to social media or exercise. And I kind of say, well, only, only you know. And only you will know when you hit rock bottom with it and only you know when, you need, when you're in the place where you need to make changes in your life. What do you advise to do? Because, I mean, I know I'm, I've had friends who have had eating disorders, um, have had addictions, but I've never known... Or I have tried to approach it and it's not worked because obviously you're saying it's self-diagnosis. Yeah. What do you do? I had this uh, conversation the other because it was brought, it, it kind of was asked of me. So I started thinking a lot about it. And I asked someone who has had an eating disorder in the past that question. I was like, what should, should if that happened again, what should I do? Like The last thing that I would have wanted you to do is to call me up on it mm. and to say something about it. Because she said she would have immediately been in denial about it and would have lied to me, et cetera, et cetera. So So the only thing you can do is stay true to yourself. And if you're concerned about someone and you say to them, I feel worried about you or I feel concerned about you, they can't dispute that. You're not saying, I think you've got an eating disorder or I think you've got an exercise addiction. What you're expressing are your own thoughts and feelings about what's going on. You're expressing your own reality. And that is the only thing that you can be absolutely sure of in that moment because you don't know what's going on in someone's mind. Yes, they might be developing an eating disorder or an addiction of some kind but you probably don't have all the information so just being really honest about where you're at and the effect that it's having on you is probably the most helpful thing you can do basically it means making sure that you are as supported as you want the other person to be sort of modeled behavior so to speak as Zoe's just described it would be most distressing for that individual, if, if you had one in class and you were to go and have those conversations, especially if you have no other relationship with that person other than you've seen them come over maybe a two or three week period, I think actually that could be really harmful to that individual. You know, and this might be their, this might be their space where they come for very specific reasons. As Zoe alluded to, you don't know the answers to everything. So I've definitely had my friends who've said to me, oh, you're addicted to Barry's. And I can say, yeah, I am addicted to it, but I can process my addiction to it in a very healthy way. I come a minimum of five times a week to my 6 a.m. class or maybe once at the weekend. But for me, it's not for the reasons it's always been alluded to. And for me, I can balance. My stool is still in place there. I can balance my work life. I can balance my social life, my family life and myself. 
But somebody looking in on the outside could be like, oh, he's here every day. Think of yourself. If you're in that situation and somebody comes to you and says, we're all really worried about you. Well, one, I'm like, bloody hell, why didn't you have that conversation with me? And who's all we? Why have you all been talking? So I really thought that fundamental piece of it's the only thing you can do in those situations is say that I'm worried and just open up that conversation because it's horrible to have a group or a mentality of a group saying, can you imagine Barry's thinks, no, 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 I am worried, I think is the way we need to approach it. So it's an interesting concept. I could see why you may have been asked that. And I think there's probably lots of things in the, in the wellness and fitness industry that are going to come up about this because it's an evolving conversation. Yeah. But I think Barry's putting it out there and saying, we're engaging with experts in the field. We're thinking about our Lucky 7 campaign that is not just about getting on a treadmill and lifting weights. It's about thinking the whole person that's what needs to happen. Yeah. It's interesting how um, people really do judge books by their covers because even clients will comment on other clients' behaviour, whether they've seen them too many times in class or if they feel they're too thin or doing too much exercise, and they will feel a need to voice that. So it's, it doesn't just come from journalists. It comes from other clients who see people in class and think that there's a problem. And I wonder if it is caring or if it's a sense of external noise or people who maybe don't exercise so much think other people shouldn't be exercising that much because they're reflecting on themselves when they look at another person. Yeah, we'd definitely be lying if we said we don't view somebody else and think about, you know, and judge. You know, that it's human nature. We do do it, but it's that full picture. So you can make judgment, but they're your judgments. The way that you verbalize it sometimes needs to be thought about. And is that going to be helpful to anybody in this situation? Normally you. Because actually, if we really were to think about it to the point that you're making, is it saying more about me or more about that person? It can be a really dangerous thing, especially if you don't know the person, if you've just seen them in a class in the example that you've given. But, but you know, sometimes there are really genuine people who are worried who are worried about some things that they might have seen. And that's not just in class, that's in life in general. And it's going back to the points that Zoe has made already about you know, owning the conversation and, and the way that you might approach that. But I think we're going to see more of this as we are much more aware and attuned to particularly people's well-being and mental health. So it's something that we're going to have to grapple with and we're not always going to get it right. And that's one of the most important things in life. You don't learn by always getting things right. You learn sometimes by not getting it right and having to take that risk. And I frequently talk about, um, when I used to teach, the the risks that we take in learning, for example, and and failing sometimes is some of the most important things that you can do. It's one of the most important lessons that you can have in life because, you know, I'd frequently talk about a test that I would would give to my students. And a test is just an assessment of where we're at. That can be a fitness test, it can be an academic test, it can be whatever. And sometimes not getting to where you want to be actually is really healthy because one it makes you realize firstly i'm alive that didn't kill me so i didn't pass that test hey i'm still alive that's fine but also you learn what it feels like to not always get what you want and the importance of that feeling helps you sometimes to get what you want the next time i was talking about that in my class today every day i'm talking about failing on the floor and i want you to fail with weights and actually get used to the process of not being able to do it for that for that exact reason and so I did for the treadmill. I said, you might not be able to do this. Sprint for a minute. That's fine. Give it a go. At least try. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do it, it doesn't matter. Next time. That's how we learn. 
You know, that's what learning is all about. We, we don't approach everything. There's not a manual to everything. You know, I, I always think back to parenting. I'm not a parent. I've got a dog. It's more enough responsibility for me. But, you know, I frequently say to parents, kids don't come with manuals. And I think that's important for us to be aware that learning is about taking risks. It's about being, you know, approaching things in a balanced way, of course. But you will not always get it right. And you may not always achieve what it is you're trying to achieve. But actually, it's the journey that you've gone on will help you with the next journey and the next. And the same is through when we talk about the therapeutic cycles and all of those things that we go through. For some people that we see in a a therapeutic setting, they may not be always able to access the therapy at that time. You know, it's not one size fits all with therapy. And people say, go to speak to a therapist. And if it doesn't work, like I, honestly, this is a personal experience of my own. Like I got sent to see a therapist when my parents were really ill um, and I just had a child. I turned up and it was probably the worst thing I could have done because it just wasn't the right fit. And for me, I was like, right, just not doing that. And I know there's lots and lots of people like me. Yeah. What do you suggest to people like that? It, shopping for a therapist <laughs> is somewhat of... A, a conversation I mean the way that the industry is kind of set up you're usually scrolling through a website picking out something that someone said in their bio or they like the way they look or you know you like the fact they're male or female or young or old or whatever it is and you kind of turn up and there are lots of experiences where people turn up and the therapist is just misattuned or works to them I'm not saying that they're misattuned in general but they're just not able to attune to that person in the modality that that person needs it is a shame that it's almost like speed dating sometimes and therapy's not cheap. So if you're trying out six or seven different therapists and you don't like any of them, you've easily just spent hundreds of pounds easily. Um, So it is a challenge. It is really difficult. I always say to people, shop around, go and see a couple of other people and just figure out what's going to work best for you um, before you settle on exactly who you want and when you want. It takes a sense of bravery, I think, in this society that we're now in i think it's becoming more acceptable to go and seek it out and then if you seek it out and it doesn't work then it's kind of it can feel quite demoralizing and then you're like oh i've been burnt once it's not the same as seeing a schedule of trainers and going oh that one didn't work for me i'm going to try that one it is kind of a vulnerable place to be in there are different ways aren't there um and it's it's all about what's age appropriate and and actually the language ability of that individual and i guess when we look at adults Mm -hmm. for some adults there are different ways. There are, there's art therapy, there's dance therapy, there's loads of different things. There's that, but there's also, you know, by the time we get to be adults, our defence mechanisms are very sophisticated. You know, when you're working with children, it's a slightly different, it's a slightly different pathology, I guess. And, you know, as a grown-up, to go into therapy and be prepared to drop those defence mechanisms and talk about, in your case, you know, that your parents are poorly, you're having a difficult time... Did you say just had a kid as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah I just had Finn. I mean, that's yeah. really challenging because that's like a generational change going on and that's a really difficult time in anyone's life. But to go in with the preparation of dropping your defence mechanisms, which will be quite sophisticated because there'll be times in your life where, as all of us as grown-ups, will have been vulnerable and got hurt and therefore we do things to protect ourselves from being hurt. It's how we survive. It's why we remember negative events. We have to remember, we have to focus on things that hurt so that we can protect ourselves from being hurt again. And then to, to find that your courage and your vulnerability is not met in that, not met in the most ideal way, will almost 
activate or trigger maybe some of the stuff that you've experienced in the past. So it makes sense to me that you just went, nope, not doing that again. Not going to let that happen again. Do you think there's... So obviously I was the person that went, oh, I'm not going to do that again. I don't feel, you know, I feel like I processed in my own way over time. Yeah. Do you think people should be having therapy as a regular, like every person should have therapy? Because we're talking about, you know, you said everyone experiences grief, everyone experiences loss, everyone experiences mental health Mm -hmm. and fluctuating mental health. Should we all be doing this as part and parcel of like a... I would, MOT I, type thing yeah I mean the thing is old school therapy I hope my generation of therapists are kind of changing it a little bit but old school therapy is like you're in therapy every week for like the rest of your life or you're in therapy every week for two years or three years or you're lying on a couch talking to an old guy with a beard you know <laughs> until you the anger towards your father has dissipated um but I would love therapy to be much more of a like I've been feeling sad for a little bit too long. I'm going to go and see a therapist and see what they have to say. And some people come and they do a session or six sessions or 10 sessions. They're like, do you know what? I think I'm done. And then some people come and they really use it every week. They use the space really well and they come for years. And that's up to the individual. But a bit like, you know, if I've got a runny nose for a bit too long, I normally end up at the doctor's. And then they help me out with that. So if I feel a little bit sad for a bit too long, I'd really love for the nature, or the culture rather, to be that we go, do you know what, I'm going to go and see if there's someone that can help me out with this because talking to my friends or my family or all the other things I've tried are not shifting the symptom. It's not that I think everyone should be in therapy, but I think everyone should have the opportunity to make the choice to do it if they wanted to. And that informed choice yeah. of, of what it is because I think you need to be prepared. You need to be able to... And it's not surprising, you know, I think, Anya, your example is, is very... It's very typical, actually, of lots of people who will approach it. But you've, it, it's it's about it's an investment and in being willing to actually have those guards down and, and, and enter into it because it's not just sitting and, and going through. For some people, it very much is that short period of intensive time that they'll require in their life, and then we'll move on from it. But I think therapy is changing. I think you know yeah. we're definitely seeing the modality change. We're seeing the duration change, and in, in you know the work that I, I work with and. And schools, we were very keen that actually it shouldn't always be about a full academic year. Actually, for some people, they need short bursts and they will get really good outcomes and results from it. But for others, it will be longer. So it's, it is very, very individualized. And I think that's the bit that is a challenge to us. It's trying to work out what's the right fit for the right person. But with good therapists, we're starting to see a huge change in that landscape. I think it's, it, you know, it just it sounds so much like the fitness landscape that we've seen over the last seven years, and how that's changed and how people address it and look at it. And it's gone from being in our world, from you know, you go on your own to a gym and you do the same routine, the same thing, mm. day in, day out, on your own. And now, fast forward seven years, and there's so much on offer. You can take your pick. You can find find the right thing that works for you. And you know, we're lucky enough that you guys. Barry's works for you but you know there's, there's people out there who it won't work for and something they need something else and it's just about finding what's right for you it sounds like it's exactly kind of the very similar in the yeah the mental health game yeah well. it's just that and I think the thing that Anya's touching on is that yes we're vulnerable when we're working on our physical bodies but when you're working on or you're being very brave around everything that you have thought or felt in a lifetime that is a particularly courageous and vulnerable place to be sitting. So there is a, just a, there are lots of similarities, but there are also some differences that need to be acknowledged in terms of 
how much of our mind, how much of our mental health, how much of our emotional landscape we let other people see. It's probably the one thing in life that we keep private. Yeah. It's the one thing that's not on social media. It's the one thing that's not in front of everybody. Yeah. And that's fine. That's actually okay. As long as you're okay at being able to identify and go forward to seek help when you need help. And I think that's the bit that's challenging. But you know what? Back to my point of earlier, we are seeing a huge change. And I would hate anybody to walk away thinking that everything is disastrous around mental health. We should be optimistic because people are getting support they need. And that is... And they're talking about it, right? It's more mainstream, right? It's now part of the conversation. So we've done this at the end of every podcast. We are going to fire 10 of our hot various questions at you. And you're trying to do it under time. You are also holding a plank and doing push-ups. So you want to be doing this quickly. Zoe, funniest Barry's moment. (laughs) Um, uh, When I tripped in my first class. Uh, Patrick, what gets you through that final sprint? Uh, Have you stood with Jay or Alex shouting at you? (laughs) (laughs) Zoe, what is your Barry's crush? Or who is your Barry's crush? Sandy. Who's your favourite instructor, Patrick? Oh, God. In front of you two. Well, I have to say you two, obviously. No, no, no. I think it should be a choice between Alex or Jay. Come on. Oh. Name. Pass. Oh, I'll let you go. Uh, Zoe, your Barry's pet peeve? Um, the slippy floors outside the showers. Um, <laughs> Favourite day of the week, Patrick? Uh, Wednesday. Zoe, your guilty pleasure? Ice cream. Worst habit in life in general, Patrick? <laughs> Always been right. Oh. <laughs> Zoe, a secret trick? Um, well, cartwheels? That a trick? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Oh, don't let those hip dip. Uh, <laughs> don't let bottom up. <laughs> a fact that no one knows about you. No one, or yeah. you don't. No one. Hurry up. Uh, <laughs> soon everyone will. Uh, no one knows about me. <laughs> Not on your knees, Zoe. <laughs> Come on, Zoe. You got it, Zoe. But nobody knows about oh, me. Zoe, 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 have you gone? Have you got um, Do you want to share? I'm obsessed with Peter Pan. Love it. <laughs> Patrick, your turn. Um, that <laughs> I used to definitely love steps. Uh, yeah, what? Do you... well done. That's well done. Are we done? Amazing, yeah, you're done. Uh, what time was it? <sighs> Sorry, that was my I think that might have been... Horrible question. That was definitely the longest. That was definitely the longest. <laughs> Penalty push-up. Ten of them, please, Patrick. Ten. Go on. And Nine. Yes, eight. Seven. Six. Go on, Patrick. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Yes. And recover. And recover. Oh, oh my goodness. Thank you so you much. You guys are amazing.